Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who have just had a really interesting life. If you're looking for inspiration for your career, if you feel a little bit stuck or bored with what you're doing right now, or if you're in search of the road less traveled job-wise, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? how they picked themselves up when things didn't go right, and how their mentors, mistakes, and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. My guest this week is Gloria Mitchell, a performance and crisis coach for entrepreneurs and public figures, helping others to deal with the pressures and strains of life at the very top. And she's recently been featured on NBC, Fox News, and Yahoo Business, to name but a few. Absolute discretion is Gloria's modus operandi, but suffice to say, you'll have heard of her clients. However, hers has not been a straightforward route to the top. Adopted as a little girl by an abusive, manipulative woman, Gloria escaped to pursue her own life and grafted hard to carve out her own path, eventually completing an MBA from Stanford, one of the most prestigious programs in the world. She has endured homelessness twice, and survived a brain tumour that affected her memory and her capacity to work. This woman is audacious. From bluntly telling the owner of a night school that she was homeless and needed help, to going on her first business trip in a limousine while she was living in her own car, Gloria's story is one that will inspire you, I'm sure. Do you want to just um, start telling me a little bit about when you were a little girl, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? I thought I wanted to be an evening newscaster on the news. Cool. That's a cool job. I don't know why, but I just thought it'd be exciting. And um, I love the fact that in your own podcast, you uh, you describe yourself as a self-confessed nerd. Did you always find school, like, were you good at school or did, did you find it quite easy when you were growing up? I did find it. I did find it quite easy. And um, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, but um, I grew up in a very disruptive household. So school was like my safe haven. So yeah, I, if I wasn't a nerd at the beginning, I became a nerd very quickly <laughs> because because I just wanted to stay away from my house. <laughs> and um, I probably should just say to the listeners that you were adopted. And what age did that happen, Gloria? Um, I believe around, there's some questions around that. So I believe I was around two or three years old when I was adopted. And uh, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the background of your kind of adoption and childhood? Are you happy to kind of talk about that? Because it wasn't always very easy when you were growing up, as you said. No, it wasn't. Um, I was adopted when I was about two or three uh, by a woman who ironically could not have children. And she adopted me, but she was very physically and mentally abusive, um, severely so. And I endured that for about, tell us about 18, 18 or 19. And then one night uh, she got upset with something I said. And she cornered me in my bedroom and she almost killed me. Um, she, there was a plastic cup on the nightstand and she picked it up to hit me with it. And then she realized it was too light. And then she grabbed a glass bottle and raised it over my head. And I really thought I was going to die. 
I really thought that was it for me. And I'm a, I'm a person of faith. Um, church had, had also been a refuge. And so I just told God at that moment, I said, if she doesn't kill me, you know, I'll leave. You know, um, I had graduated from high school, but I was staying there because she was paying for college. And I just thought if I could finish my four years of college and then get away from her, it would be fine. But at that point, I realized that I really didn't have that option, that I would just have to leave. And so I left. We've spoken before on this podcast about the cost of college in the U.S., but Gloria saying here that she endured abuse at the hands of her adoptive mother because she was paying her college fees really, really struck me. The horror of this situation and the trade-off a young woman was prepared to make for the sake of her education is one that is quite difficult to countenance. But that night was the final straw, and Gloria got out. Her desire to fulfil her promise at college was put on hold, at least for a while. And what were you planning to study at college when you were when you were going to go and do that, Gloria? I was still going to be a television newscaster. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, had, I love that. So that had stayed with yes, you all the way through. I was going to be a communications major. That had been the plan. <laughs> okay. Okay. So do you want to just kind of tell me a little bit about what happened after that? Um, so you left home at 18. How, did you manage to – you obviously picked up college again later, but do you want to just fill the gaps in on like – what happened to you when you left? Yeah, sure. sure. Um, after I left her uh, place, I ended up cleaning a woman's house uh, for room and board. Um, that's what I had to do. And it was very, it was difficult. I, I'm not going to kid you. I know some people say they could do those jobs and it's all great, but that just hadn't been part of my plan. So it was very mentally taxing to, you know, to have to you know, clean someone's house and scrub someone's floors. And she was very particular. She didn't want any trash in the garbage can, which means as you throw things away, that meant I had to almost follow her around oh my goodness. because I had to throw it out. She, yeah. Yeah. It was very intense. So I did that for several months. And then one day someone told me about a part-time gig, um, helping with the get out the vote effort. Yeah. And, and in the U S that's where you go door to door, encouraging people to vote for a certain political candidate. So I took that gig. Um, it was a part-time gig. It was only $5 an hour. But one of the ca- candidates I was canvassing for, he was reelected. And he had an opening available in his office to work as a legislative aide. Okay. Now, I had no experience in politics, okay? <laughs> but I was a good writer and communicator and a quick learner. And I pretty much talked my way into that job. And so... I worked that job for about two years and was offered another job working for someone else for more money. So I quit the old job and bought a car because up to this point I didn't have a car. And then I had the new job offer rescinded, but I had already quit the old job. So I couldn't go back to that. And in the U.S., if you quit, you can't collect unemployment. So I didn't have that as an option. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. So this is, this is, this is creating a bad scenario here. from bad to worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> and so I remember having one check left, you know, one check that was coming to me. And I'll never forget this. I had just gotten the car and I got the one check. And I remember thinking, okay, if I pay my rent, 
then I'm probably not going to be able to pay for my car after this month. Like there would just be, there wouldn't be enough money left. And so I said, okay, you have a choice. You either pay rent for that one month and then we don't know what you're going to do, or you're going to have to give up your place and sleep in your car, but you'll have your car for several months because of the amount of money it would, you know, it would cover at least, at least about four months. And so that's what I chose. And so I began, I guess you could say I started being homeless at that point. And how old were you then, Gloria? I was around 20, around 21. One thing that really struck me in this conversation is how casually Gloria tells the story of how she became homeless and the reality of how easily it can happen to anyone if circumstances conspire against you. Having spent a bit of time working with the homeless at university, I was embarrassed then at my own naivety about the fact that the path from success to homelessness is shorter than you think. Divorce was commonly cited as a contributory factor, along with redundancy, addiction of varying sorts and mental health issues, often undiagnosed for long periods of time. Gloria had been renting a room whilst working a good job, and she is clearly a smart, intelligent woman that had accepted a new position in good faith. How quickly things can unravel. I was just going to ask you a little bit about um, becoming homeless. You know, like that is a scenario that most people will probably never encounter in their life. Can you just give us a flavor of what it's like to be living in your car you know having read and listened to people previously speaking about living on the streets it's scary and it's cold like can you give us a flavor of that kind of life yeah yeah I think well first of all for me I think it was a little bit different than it probably is for most people uh, mainly because it had still only been about two and a half years since I left my abusive home So for most people, it would be just horrific. But for me, as long as I wasn't getting beat, it was kind of more acceptable in my mind somehow. Like I I felt safer, which sounds weird. But when you when you're you've grown up constantly afraid because I was constantly afraid of the woman who who, uh, raised me. I just just having some place, even though it was just a car, I felt safer there than I had, you know, growing up. But my day to day. what I would do, because I'm very small, and so I feel like I'm a target sometimes. I'm like 5'2 and 110 pounds, so I, f- I felt like I was a target. But because I was small, it made it easier for me to sleep in my car because I'm pretty tiny. I could squeeze <laughs> the back seat. And so what I did was I would park my car in, in parking lots where I felt it wouldn't be noticed. So I would park either in a hotel parking lot or apartment complex parking lots, just a place where there were a lot of cars and mine would kind of just blend in. And then I would put uh, clothes, I would hang clothes on the sides of the windows so nobody could really, you know, see that I was inside of there. And then I would have like a big, my car would be kind of really messy on purpose though. So, you you know, if it's really neat, you kind of could notice I was in there, but I would make it really junky and messy. And then I would have this, um, a comforter that I would put over my head and then I would try to stack books on my legs so that again it wouldn't look like I was in there um but that being said it became somewhat um unsettling as it got colder yeah that's when it became uh, very difficult and almost disorienting because you really can't sleep when it's cold 
And um, so, yeah, it was it was definitely a challenging time. And that went on for that went on for several months, you know, Um, and I was homeless later in my life. And I'll talk about that briefly. But, yeah, it was it was definitely very challenging. And so you were just job hunting in that time, trying to find a new role, you know, just looking for something else. Yes. And remember, I'm telling my age, but um, I'm in my late 40s. So there was no Internet. So looking for a job was literally looking in the newspaper. God, you do not look in your late 40s. I'm sorry, just to interrupt you. you. (laughs) If I looked at your picture on the website, I would have said you were in your early 30s. Thank you. Thank you so much. You look incredible. (laughs) Wow. Sunscreen. sunscreen. Um, But no, yes. um, So there was no internet. So I, what I did was I, I would, I called a lot of employment agencies and I registered with them and eventually one sent me on and got me an interview uh, with a company. And I remember her saying that I needed a software program. It was called Lotus one, two, three. And I didn't know it at all. Like I didn't know it, but I told her I did. And so I said, <laughs> yes, I know this. So, Very sensible. Flag it. <laughs> definitely. Exactly. And so I told her I did. And so she said, okay, cause they're going to test you on it. Oh my goodness. And so I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? But I remembered so, a couple of years back when I was working at that job that I had, and I was walking to and from work, I would pass this computer training school. And so I, I literally, I drove there and I asked to speak to the owner and I just looked at her very calmly and I said, hi, my name's Gloria Mitchell and I'm sleeping in my car and I have a job interview in a week and I really need to know Lotus 123. Is there any way I can barter with you? Then you will, you will teach me Lotus 123. And I don't know if she just felt sorry for me because I was that blunt and letting her know, you know, hey, I'm, I'm struggling here and I need someone to help me out. But she was willing to teach me. Um, and so she sat down with me. I came back, I think, two days later, and she sat down with me for like two hours. It's easy to be cynical in a world where the news seems bad all the time. But there are a lot of good people out there people who will help others if given half a chance, and people who will take a chance on you if you ask. It takes guts to expose your weaknesses and vulnerability as Gloria did. But sometimes fronting up and asking for something may open a door for you that you don't expect. You know, it's really hard when you're under the gun and you feel, or your things are really hard on you and um, you feel like no one cares. But sometimes, you know, you have to put yourself out there. And because I put myself out there, uh, she was willing to help me. And so I had, I had the interview and I got the job and that started me on the path of stability. Um, and, and even though I think, I, I think for a while, for about two months, two or three months, I still worked full time and slept in my car, but that was more because of in the United States in certain cities, you have to have first month's rent and last month's rent, one month security. And I didn't have that. So I would, um, I would work full time and, and uh, sleep in my car at night. But the great thing about that job was one of their company benefits was paying for college at night. Oh wow! Okay, you know, presumably people at work didn't know that you were sleeping in your car when you started your new job. How did you kind of manage the practicalities of you know showering, washing your clothes, making yourself presentable for a new job? Like, how do you manage those kind of things when you're living uh, in your car? It was very challenging. But one thing I did was. In the United States in gas stations, sometimes you go into a gas station and it has like four or five, you know, stalls for you to use. But then in smaller gas stations, they just have one bathroom, like one bathroom and it has a sink and you lock the door and no one comes in. 
And so, (laughs) and so that is what I would have to do. I would just, I mean, I'm just being honest. I never took a full shower for several months. I I just had to go in there with a towel and take care of everything. So I didn't smell. Um, and you know, try to do my hair as best I could. And then I just, you know, tried to make it work. But I will say this, there was a point, um, that my, um, employer did find out. They found out, but they found out only because I got sick. I passed out and I got sick and they were saying, is there anybody I could call? And they had to take me to the hospital. And so at some point it, you know, the person who was with me, uh, found out that I was without a home. Uh, so yeah, that was embarrassing, but I will say this, this is, and I'm not making this up. My first business trip I took while I was homeless. I was able to get into a shelter at one point briefly and I didn't know travel was part of my job, but my boss got sick and she couldn't go. And they asked me if I could go. And I said, yes. And then I didn't know what that meant. And then they said, okay. And you know, the limo, the limo will pick you up. Yeah. You know, I didn't know I was only in my early twenties and I didn't, you know, I didn't come from this world. So I had no idea. I'm like, Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Um, because you know, you you can't have the limo come to the shelter. Um, so so I remember trying to explain to the limousine service, I was like, Oh, you can pick me here, but no, we need a specific address. And I was, and so I was kind of giving them the, 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 the brush off. And it just so happened that that morning when I woke up, there was construction on the street, so he couldn't get down there anyway. So luckily, I was able to, you know, walk to the corner, and he he was none the wiser. But yeah, I thought that was funny. Gloria's role at that point was in corporate communications, and clearly she was really good at it, so much so that the company offered to fund her through her college degree part-time. She might still have been homeless at that point, but her wish to continue her education was fulfilled, and Gloria began to then map out a vision for her future. So I did my undergrad there at night, and it was actually during that first semester um, while I was working full-time, going to school at night and sleeping in my car, that I got the, um, that I made the decision to go to Stanford for my MBA. I was at a Barnes & Noble and just ran across books about business schools, and somehow Stanford spoke to me. And so I still wasn't done with undergrad, I had a long way to go, uh, but I sent off for an application, even then. And I sat down at the library and mapped this five-year plan. I know I'm sounding so intense. But, you know. <laughs> no, I, I was actually just about to say that's incredible, like, vision and goal setting when you're in a place that is, you know, so super difficult. Because if you're only halfway through your undergrad, you've been living in your car, you've got a lot on your plate. And then to sit down and say, I want to go to Stanford to do my MBA, which is one of the most prestigious courses in the world is kind of incredible foresight for somebody to have in that situation because most people would be not even thinking about an MBA. You'd just be thinking, okay, I get my undergrad, that's fine. You know, and actually to kind of have the drive and the determination to think this is not enough for me, I want more, then I find that absolutely sensational to be quite honest. Well, to be honest, I think one of the things, one of the things that my adoptive mother did do right was that she was a nurse. And she, when I was around four or five, she found out where the doctors sent their kids to school. And it was a private school. And they didn't have, I think they only had one other African-American student in the whole school. And somehow she talked them into giving me a scholarship 
and we were we were not wealthy. So I think what happened looking back was that I spent like eight years where I was the poor kid, but I was going to school with some extremely wealthy kids. And I, I could see that there was another world besides what I was living in. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, completely, completely. And there's like a huge irony to the fact that, you know, your adoptive mother was brutal to you in so many ways. And yet she gave you the gift of an amazing education, which is such a paradox. Yes, it is. It is. It is. So yeah, I, I, um, I sent off for a Stanford application and I mapped out, I think a five-year plan. It took me about seven because I got sick, but I mapped out a five-year plan and was very grateful that when it did come time to apply, they had never changed the application. So I had mapped my plan perfectly. Hmm, That's incredible. So you obviously went to do your MBA and uh, you now have your own business um, and are very, very highly successful. Do you want to just talk a little bit about your transition from communications into coaching and what you do now, Gloria, and what your job entails? Sure. Um, I am a crisis and performance coach for entrepreneurs and public figures. And the way I came to be a coach is that right after I graduated from Stanford, I was actually diagnosed with a benign brain tumor. My Lord, you have had it dished out to you in life. <laughs> it's been rough sometimes. Yes, yes. But yes, but no. I had I had I was diagnosed with a benign brain tumor um, actually during the interview process, and so I had to take myself out of the interviewing process because I had to focus on that. And while I was dealing with that, a classmate of mine who I'd helped through a challenging time reached out to me, and they said that they had a colleague of theirs that was struggling, and they wondered if I would um, talk to him and give him some advice. He was at a startup, and he was just having a challenging time. And so I said, sure, you know, I'll talk to him. And so I spoke with him. And after our conversation, he said he wanted to hire me um, as a coach. And I explained to him that I was not a coach. Um, <laughs> and you had so, no formal qualifications. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And that, that's exactly what I told him. Um, but he was pretty adamant. And I said, okay, I'll agree to give this a shot as long as he understood that I had never done this before. So it was probably going to be bumpy. And two, I was dealing with my own challenge, you know, the benign brain tumor, and that if things took a turn, you know, I would have to, you know, stop working with him. And so he said, okay. And that's how I started to be a coach. And over the years, I have um, I've had a variety of different types of clients, but over the years, I've come to focus on doing performance work and crisis work uh, for entrepreneurs and public figures. I think mainly because that's just an area that I'm comfortable with and definitely the crisis side. And the performance side came as a result of working with people on the crisis side and then them saying they wanted to continue to work with me even though we'd gotten through the crisis. What sort of crises do you deal with? Do you have a kind of typical scenario or do you have something that kind of comes up regularly that you could tell us a little bit about, Gloria? Yeah, sure. Um, Quite often, especially with entrepreneurs, the reason I'm sought out is because Quite often an entrepreneur has been diagnosed with cancer or some other serious kind of illness. And there's an emotional side of that to that, of course, you know, and sometimes I work in conjunction with the therapist, but there's also the business side of that. I mean, when when an employee gets sick or gets cancer, it's different than when an entrepreneur gets cancer because an entrepreneur has a whole business that they're running. 
And if they're not there, there's a possibility the business can't go on. And so what I do is I take a look at what they themselves personally are doing in their business on a day-to-day basis and also look at their personal life and see how they're functioning on a day-to-day basis. And we figure out what changes need to be made in order for their life to still run smoothly while they deal with cancer or whatever other serious illness they're dealing with. Okay, right. So it's very kind of practical, um, like dealing with, you know, how keeping a business going at a time of of personal crisis, I guess. Right, exactly. But also making changes in their personal life, because quite honestly, a lot of entrepreneurs are overworked and Mm. might not be taking care of themselves (laughs) in the way that they should. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, I think that a lot of people who are entrepreneurs and particularly people who are very successful, if you're working with very successful people, they're often crazy hour working exactly, people, exactly. you know, that these are people who never take a holiday they work 100 hours a week all those right exactly and by the time they come to me I mean of course given the situation they know they need to make changes but they possibly don't know uh, how to make those changes because they're, they're used to working 60 or 70 hours a week and you mentioned you do quite a lot with sports people as well what sort of uh, what sort of work do you do with them you know it, it's really it's interesting because you know the problems that I deal with are the same challenges that I think every other person deals with. I mean, it's really on the performance side, it's really about how to get uh, the most out of the life that they have. And I think we all struggle with that. And I think we all struggle with making trade-offs. And then I think we also, many of us come to a point where, you know, we realize something's not working, but we don't know what's not working. And we have to figure that out. So, so yeah. So usually the people that I, I work with on the performance side, they usually are high performers, of course, by definition. But they they have a hard time transferring that to their personal life. So they might be very good at what they do, but other areas of their life might need some work. And I always sort of talk to people about your mentors, your mistakes, and your motivations. So have you had any mentors or people that have really kind of encouraged you in your career, Gloria? And and similarly, do you have anyone that you're working with as like, as a, have you been a mentor yourself? Yeah, I, I have had two people in my life that have really uh, made a difference. One was on the professional side and one was on the personal side. Uh, the professional side happened when I was working at the company that was paying for school. There was a one of the managers in my department, but not my direct manager. He was an older gentleman, probably in his 60s, uh, Caucasian. Uh, we probably had nothing in common. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but at some point, I felt uh, comfortable enough letting him know that one of my ambitions was to get an MBA from Stanford. And he took me on under his wing and, and really and, and believed in that because I have to be honest, many people who I shared that dream with did not believe that that was possible for me. And just having that one person uh, believe that it was possible and, and take me under his wing and really um, kind of groomed me because I didn't, you know, I wasn't from that world. And here I was in, in corporate America and I didn't really know how things, the the unwritten rules, what they were. He was great. And then the other person is probably the person who had the biggest impact on my life as a whole was um, at one point 
I got Lyme disease and I had to stop working. This was before Stanford. And I was sent to a psychologist um, because they said it was all in my head. And, and she, you know, she evaluated me and she said, mm, mm, yeah, you're depressed, but you're depressed because something is biologically wrong with you, you know? And, um, she took me under her wing and, uh, really, I guess really fought for me to get the diagnosis of uh, Lyme disease and subsequently, uh, kind of went beyond her job. So, once I got Lyme disease, I had to stop working and I could barely walk and I could barely cook. Um, and I had no family, remember? See, this is what happens when you have no family. But she would call me every single day just to make sure that I had been able to eat and, and so forth. And um, and she really just showed me compassion and, and caring. And she had an incredible uh, impact on my life. And uh, subsequently, I, I subsequently, um, she passed away, I think about four years ago. And uh, I was asked by her family to uh, give one of the eulogies. So it was really life coming full circle. Mm -hmm. You need people like that in your life to kind of look out for you, don't you, you know? And, um, and what about kind of mistakes? I, I love to talk to people about their failures. And because I think, such growth often comes from times of failure and you know I can't even count the number of failures and mistakes I've had in my own career <laughs> um, but have you had anything kind of in particular that um has really you look back now and you think oh my gosh that seemed like the worst thing ever at the time but really that's been the making of me there have probably been only let me see I've made many mistakes in my life but career-wise <laughs> career-wise uh, one of the biggest mistakes I made in my career was was once I um, applied for and accepted a position that I didn't I didn't know a lot about and that I hated but I just took it for the money now that sounds like such a light thing but I was so miserable that I made myself physically sick like I can tell you I was depressed I was miserable, but I just, I was just following the money and I was very young at the time. So that was one. And I think the other one honestly had to do with the career that I'm in now. Um, there was a point where I was really afraid to do this full time. So I had like three or four clients, but I couldn't, sometimes it's when you can't see the direct path, you kind of get scared. And I got a little scared, like, oh, can I really do this? full time for the rest of my life? Is this really possible? And so I applied for a job at a university and I got an interview. And the day before the interview, the night before the interview, I got horribly sick. They rescheduled the interview. The day before the interview again, I got horribly sick. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah, you see what's going on here. And I, I was literally, I was having a panic attack, but I didn't know that's what it was. And I called a friend of mine and he was like, what, I think I'm, I'm, I don't know what's going on, I just, but I have to go on this interview. I just have to go. I said, because if I don't go, they're not going to ever interview me again. And he said, well, I have a question. Do you have to take this job? Like, will you, will you survive financially if you don't take this job? And I said, well, yeah, I, 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 I could probably survive. You know, I wouldn't have the security, but I would survive. And he said, okay, well, do you think that this job is really what you want to be doing for the rest of your life? And I said, well, well, no, but, and he says, so if it's not, if it's not what you need to survive and it's not 
what you feel you're going to do for the rest of your life or you want to do for your, the rest of your life, and it's not going to make you feel alive, why does it matter if they close the door, if it's not your door? And I was like, oh, I never thought about that. You know? <laughs> and I think, well, no, but I think we all, we all, when anytime you do something like I do or something that's very atypical and you're going out on your own, I just think it's always, it's always hard to fully, fully believe that it's going to all work out. And I just hate that I second guessed myself. So I guess that was the mistake is that I second guessed myself and I caused myself a lot of unnecessary stress. But actually when you're starting a new business and like you say, you're striking out on your own, you presumably were working on your own in the beginning. And, you know, that is, it's tough. The the kind of concept of becoming a freelancer, entrepreneur, self-employed, whatever you call it, that, that kind of loss of stable income is particularly, I think, in a situation where you've been homeless a couple of times and you have known deprivation in that sense, which most people, a lot of people haven't, you know, that kind of losing that security is, is a big deal, you know, instead of turning your back on things to, to say, I'm going to do this must, must have been a big decision. What's the structure of your business now, Gloria? Because obviously you're a very, very, very successful woman. I want to say this because I think it's so funny. I was, I was telling someone the other day, I was like, you know, I've been grinding and grinding and I'm thinking nothing's happening. And then in a, in a span of a week, I don't know if you had it went to my website lately, but in the span of a week, I was like mentioned on Fox business and entrepreneur.com and uh, Yahoo Finance. I'm like, man, you know, but when you're grinding, you just feel like it's never going to happen. Yeah, you do. You do. And how did those things like, so what is it that's turned around your recognition? Do you think you said those things have happened? Is it just everything has come into fruition? Or? Yes. Yes. I hate to say that, but that's it. You know, it's just putting in the time and it's like, it's hard. It is. It's hard. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's just putting in the time, especially my kind of work, because, because of the type of work I do, my work is only word of mouth. Like the people I work with, they will, most of them will probably never say they work with me, uh, you know? And, and so I have to just grind and, and trust that word of mouth will, will continue. But right now I usually have between seven and nine clients and I usually take on no more than three or four crisis clients. And that's just because emotionally and time-wise, it, it's, it's more intense to have those clients. And so I do my client work phone work on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then the rest of the time is either doing research or doing the things that I need to do to sustain my business. Cool. And what do you think is next for you? Have you got big plans for your business or, you know, what do you, where do you um, see yourself in kind of like five to 10 years? Like, do you, are you the kind of person that formulates a plan or are you just winging it as you go along? Well, I do formulate a plan, but I, I, I love what I'm doing and I feel like it's what I'm supposed to be doing. And so Right now, I envision myself um, continuing to do that. There are some things on the uh, personal life side. I, I, ironically, given my past, I am looking to uh, adopt um, a couple of older children. So, you know, that's in my future. But as far as my profession, uh, I love what I'm doing. So hopefully I will continue to do that. And do you kind of have anything else to sort of add or say or promote or anything else you think is kind of um, pertinent for working women or, you know, women, particularly coming from a background that perhaps hasn't been so privileged as they've gone along, Gloria? You know, the one thing I will say is this. It's hard. That's all I can tell you. It's hard. It's not easy. It is hard. But you just have to keep going. 
And I think that stands for, I mean, that goes for anyone who is coming from uh, a difficult background or just anyone who wants to go from point A to point B and they're not sure if they can do it. I, I just say you just keep taking action. The road will will show itself, but you just have to keep getting up every day. Um, you know, I spend an hour working on my mindset every day. I don't think people have to spend an hour, but uh, definitely work on your mindset and be careful about the negative things you allow into your life and, and just keep working at it. But you, you do have the, I think my life shows you do have the, the power to create the life you want. Mm, such good advice. Well, thank you so much, Gloria. I just love this chat. Oh, you're so welcome. I know it's crazy. My life is so hectic when I, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is going to sound crazy to people, but it is what it is. When you say, oh yeah, my life sounds really crazy. Yes, it does. But then lots of people have lots of crazy things in their life, don't they? I, whatever <laughs> that may be, you know? Um, so I just love to hear from different people and I think it's important as well you know to just create that kind of level of diversity with podcast guests I feel like I've had all of these like lows when I'm talking to people I'm like oh it sounds like such a dramatic life but you know I think honestly after growing up in that home every very little is as hard as it was living with that woman Gloria has had her own podcast living a phenomenal life it's called which is currently on hiatus but makes for fascinating listening nonetheless And in the final episode, she talks about her own life and about forgiveness. She quotes the late, great Mayor Angelou, who said, I forgive people, but that doesn't mean I accept their behavior or trust them. I forgive them for me so I can let go and move on with my life. Forgiveness is not about letting someone off the hook for their actions, but freeing ourselves of the negative energies that bind us to them. I asked Gloria whether she thought that the freedom of forgiveness has allowed her to flourish in her life. Exactly. And it, it was, it was, it was very healing just ironically before I let you go, but it was very healing for me because when I went back, I went back in November and I cleaned out this cause she passed away. So I cleaned out the, 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 the storage unit and I went to the cemetery and I went to the cemetery to, uh, to close that chapter with her. And I realized, I don't know why I didn't notice this on the day we buried her. My birth mother is buried. She She's buried directly behind my birth mother. Oh, my goodness. Really? Yeah, she's buried directly behind her. Wow. Yes, 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 which I, which I found very, um, very ironic. But yeah. Very ironic. Yeah. I mean, I kind of was, like, reflecting on what you'd been saying about her. And, and it does make you wonder, like, why would somebody adopt a child if – they didn't really like it's not like no, I, I think what I, I don't know for sure but I think what happened she two things one her sister had five kids so she could and I think that was part of it and two she would always say to me when she was when I would you know push back on her abuse she would always say to me well I'm not doing half of what my mother did to me so I think she endured and a significant amount of abuse and I think um her sister and, and I think she just she just you know, when she became angry, she was, she just became just almost evil. I hate to say that, but I'm like, I've just never met very few people like her. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I close that chapter and I'm very, I'm just very thankful as I've gotten older. I'm very thankful that I was able to get out alive because it doesn't, you know, you hear it in the news all the time. So many kids die and I'm thinking, man, I could have easily died and I didn't, I got out, you know, there was a point in my life, um, even while I was at Stanford where I would have never told this story. I would have never told how challenging my 
life had been. It was just, you know, I was just going to blend in with everyone else at the company. And, you know, no one was going to know. So it's just, it's, it's great that um, I'm able to share and that you have this great platform for me to, to help other women. Thanks so much to Gloria for her calm honesty. I'm always wowed by the capacity that survivors have for sharing their truth, as it must never be easy, and I'm really grateful. You can find Gloria online at GloriaMitchell.com if you're interested in her work. And she's at Gloria Mitchell on Twitter, so check her out. That's all for this week, though. If you enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then do please tell a friend, as we are always keen for new listeners. If you'd like to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, then I would love you very, very much as it helps others to find us. But in the meantime, we'll see you next week.